Escaping Denver, Batch 2. Bonus Episode 2, Interview with Daniel Otis. Starting to feel familiar. We once again made it through another batch, and while we got a few answers, I am still far from satiated. That itch just, you know, ain't scratched. So in order to keep my feet moving, I have once again headed out into the world to seek advice and answers from someone who knows more than I do. Earlier in this batch of messages, we sort of just blew past the fact that they got stuck in some sort of ship. Given that, I thought it prudent to chat with someone about spaceships, or more specifically, UFOs. See how I just let it sit there? It is uncomfortable to talk about, even tangentially, let alone directly. But we have to. We have to be able to discuss the unknown in a way that isn't embarrassing. Because it isn't. The pursuit of answers is a noble calling, and once again, I have reached out to a great journalist who's doing just that. Daniel Otis is a contributor to Vice and CTV, to name a few, sat down with me to discuss, of all things, UFOs. Now, Daniel's a seasoned journalist who traditionally does not cover conspiracies or alien mysteries, but something about the mystery of UFOs hooked him. And for the last year and a half, he has been doing a deep dive into Canada's UFO reporting. He scoured thousands of documents, and I, I'm hoping he'll act as a shortcut between all that information and some form of conclusion. So without further ado, here's my chat with Daniel. All right, so we've got Daniel Otis with us today, writer, journalist, adventurer, uh, contributing writer for a heap of outlets, including uh, CTV and Vice. Uh, thank you for being with us today, Daniel. Thanks for having me. So we are here to chat UFOs. You have spent the last bulk of years combing through uh, heaps of government documents. And I would love to chat about your expertise on the matter. Absolutely. Yeah, let's dig in. I mean, for the past year and a half, I've been uh, researching almost exclusively uh, declassified Canadian UFO documents, also finding public records, trying to get exclusive interviews to essentially convey that there are UFO reports in Canada. Credible observers like pilots, soldiers and police officers are seeing these things. And there's a huge body of documented evidence. Well, let, let's talk about that year and a half. So in in 2021, uh, Canada released a bunch of uh, declassified information about UFOs. And if I'm not mistaken, that was around the same time they started to cut off Chris Rakowski uh, from that information. The government took over. Is that, is that about right in the timeline? Well, uh, which release of information are you referring to? I mean, in April 2021, that releases through access to information requests. I started pulling uh, UFO documents from the Department of National Defense and Transport Canada, which is a federal transportation department. And it's true, you know, as I started writing about that um, and as this increasingly became public in Canadian media, a uh, Winnipeg-based uh, science writer and UFO researcher named Chris Rakowski. Uh, for two decades, he had been quietly receiving uh, UFO reports sent directly from the Canadian government and military. And when I started writing about this, yes, it coincided with uh, the tap being cut for Chris, unfortunately. It, it, it seems as though the more public things became, the more the government 
felt like they had something they should probably take control of or uh, at least control the narrative of? Maybe, you know, I don't think it's exactly so clear cut. So as I mentioned, Chris, Chris had this relationship where he was quietly getting this material from the military and federal transportation authorities. Yeah. For about two decades, Uh, you know, he calls it a handshake agreement. Uh, both the transportation officials and the military refer to it as an informal agreement. Now, when all this material started coming to light, I started publishing on UFOs in April 2021, and it probably gave the subject in Canada uh, uh, more of a lift, a more high-profile lift than it had you know, maybe ever had in recent times with my reporting for Vice. Um, the Transport Canada did stop sending material to Chris. Uh, in fact, I asked when I asked them why they sent an almost offensive statement saying that they had been doing so previously as a courtesy to help Chris with his fiction writing. You know, that's how dismissive they were of the topic. Uh, the, the, min- the Ministry of National Defense, though, was a little bit different. Um, you know, in recent statements to me, they said that their policies with Chris uh, are unchanged, that they haven't turned off the tap. Uh, and in addition to that, you know, I did a piece for CTV News uh, very recently that through um, the access information system, we were able to obtain uh basically the PowerPoint slide presentation that Canada's Minister of Defense received on UFOs in June of 2021, so just about a year ago. Uh, In that document, Chris was mentioned by name, and when I asked him about it after after I uh, was able to obtain these briefing slides, uh, Chris revealed that he had been asked to help participate and craft this briefing for the Minister of National Defense. So it seems that the, uh, the, the well has gone dry in terms of his relationship with transportation officials, but there still seems to be some active communication uh, with the Canadian military. Well, that, let's talk about that because that's an interesting element of all this that kind of differs from the United States, that in Canada, they have a privatized, uh, privatized their, what, NAV Canada, uh, is privatized uh, air traffic control in Canada. And so since 1996, they are the ones that almost exclusively receive these reports. Uh, The, goodness, service reports and the KDORS reports? Yeah, you know, it's a little convoluted. You know, I can sort of break down the chain of custody of these reports for you, if that's helpful. Absolutely. Um, So NAV Canada is a private company that basically owns and operates all of the air traffic control infrastructure here in Canada. So that, you know, that's airport control towers, et cetera. In the U.S., like in Denver, uh, those functions are performed by a government organization, the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. In Canada, all of that's privatized, uh, which means that, you know, I can't you could get certain radar data and tower audio in regards to American cases. You can't really do that in Canada because you can't file freedom of information requests with a private company. Now, the reason this company is significant, you know, it's not that they receive all UFO reports, but they receive, they're the first point of contact of all aviation related UFO reports. So if an American Airlines pilot or Air Canada or WestJet or United, if, if a pilot with an airline like that is flying over Canada and they see something, their first point of contact is going to be a NAV Canada air traffic controller. 
under NAV Canada policies, when they receive these reports, uh, they forward them to Transport Canada, the government transportation agency I previously mentioned. They also forward it to uh, an Air Force squadron in Canada that's tied with NORAD, NORAD being the uh, North American Joint Air Defense Group between Canada and the US. And so when those reports go to Transport Canada and, and the Air Force, what they're usually called are service reports. That's an acronym, C-I-R-V-I-S, which stands for Communication Instructions for Reporting Vital Intelligence Sightings. This is a Cold War era threat reporting mechanism that was uh, developed by the U.S. and quickly adopted by Canada in the early 1950s. So this is a a mechanism that's been around for a long time, and now it's been adopted by this uh, this private air navigation infrastructure company. The, the other acronym you mentioned, uh, uh, KDORS, um, that stands for Civil Aviation Daily Occurrence Report System. This is a government-maintained aviation incident database. Basically, if anything happens with a pilot in Canada, mechanical issues, bird strike, drunk unruly passengers, uh, okay. drone sighting, it, it, all, it all gets logged into this aviation incident reporting system. And a lot of my research began by combing through this system, which is maintained by Transport Canada, and identifying cases where uh, Canadian pilots had witnessed weird things. Based on those publicly available reports, uh, I filed uh, freedom of information requests with the military and was able to find their intelligence reports, the service reports uh, that you mentioned. So there's this whole, it's a little convoluted. (laughs) There's a lot of acronyms, but basically in a nutshell, The air traffic control company, Nav Canada, first line of contact, they notify Transport Canada. Uh, Those notifications to Transport Canada get published publicly as KDORS reports. Nav Canada also notifies uh, the military. And usually in the past, it was Transport Canada that was notifying Chris Rakowski, the ufologist in Winnipeg. It is convoluted, Uh, (laughs) but it it does sound like there's a, private entity between essentially the public and that information. And when going through all of your wonderful articles, you speak with heaps, I mean, heaps of experts and specialists who talk about former pilots that say, you know, it is, you know, such a small percentage of pilots that would be willing to report that they've seen something uh, because it's, it can be career altering to have that information out there. Uh, and then of that percentage, that small percentage that, you know, do the survey, uh, do the report with NAV Canada, then they presumably pass over a portion of the reports they get. And it feels like every time along the process, we lose a little bit more. And still at the end, you know, you're, you're saying you found, you know, dozens of occurrences of uh, not necessarily UFOs, but well, yeah, actually UFOs, unidentified flying objects. You found suspicious articles, even even though it's been diluted this far by the time it gets to uh, a place where you can access that information. And to me, that, that says that there must be so much more. That's you know, so many more occurrences that we're not hearing about because I can't imagine that I would put my career on the line to say, I, I saw something or I think I saw something. And, I, and the fact that some of these pilots are actually doing that, at least on my side of things, I, I can't help but trust that because it, I don't see what's in it for them to lie. 
Absolutely. You know, I, one of the people I talked to was a, a former Canadian fighter pilot by the name of Jock Williams, who had his own sighting. But he basically said to me, but what you're saying now is that, you know, as, as a pilot, whether you're a commercial airline pilot or a military pilot, you have nothing to gain and everything to lose by filing one of these reports. You know, you file a report like this, you risk ridicule. This is a pretty, you know, usually the aviation community is a pretty straight-laced group. You know, this is considered out there and wacky and you're not going to make any friends and you're not going to do your career any good by filing these reports. You know, hopefully that's changing. uh, And by having seeing more stories in the in the media uh, pilots, hopefully that stigma will break. But it's a huge barrier. And so, like you said, you know, it's, it's almost a game of broken telephone in some cases. The pilot talks to the air traffic controller who talks to someone at an Air Force base who talks to some, you know, there's. In the records I've been finding, it, it's very rare to find direct accounts from, from these pilots. They do exist, uh, and I have found some um, in cases where there's been more follow-up. But yeah, it, it's challenging. And, and some of these reports are just, you know, the ones that get published, they can just be one or two sentences. And, and they, they're so tantalizing. You know, for example, there was one I found um, May 30th, 2016 an Air Canada express flight from Montreal to Toronto reported it had, quote, crossed an unidentified flying object, round in shape, flying at an approximate speed of 300 knots, which is uh, more than 550 kilometers an hour. And the report that got published was just, you know, basically that one line. So it's, it's very... Uh, it's very captivating to see stuff like that. And it's frustrating as a researcher because uh, you want to get more, you want to get to these pilots, but most cases their identities are protected in the release. Although I certainly have had some success in tracking people down and having people come to me. Well, so you're a journalist. You, you go out there pursuing these answers. So when you talk to people who have, when you're able to track down the people who have had these experiences, I mean, how compelling is it? Are, are you immediately swayed? Well, I swayed by what? I think what's compelling for me is it's the mystery. You know, like there, there, there is, as far as I'm concerned, there aren't many sightings, you know, that definitively, when we talk about the real, the really weird ones, you know, I, I think all that is established is that people are seeing things that are unusual and that defy conventional explanation. You know, there's no clear answer as to what that is, whether it be government technology or some sort of atmospheric phenomena or, you know, perhaps even visitors from elsewhere. We, we just don't know. And well, all, all three of those are actually pretty scary regardless. You know, the fact that a technology could exist where a flying orb can keep track and keep up with a plane somewhere in the sky, whether it's government, whether it's a, a weather phenomenon or aliens, all of the above are scary, provided that the orb exists. Well, it's not just scary, you know, if that, it's almost like a crime against humanity. If, if some government or group has created a new form of propulsion or perhaps harnessed a new energy source that could end our reliance on fossil fuels, you know, like that, that would be revolutionary. And if that, if that was being hidden from the public, you know, the implications of that being what this all is, the, the implications there are huge too. I, th- I think the, you know, I, I've done something like over 170 freedom of information requests here in Canada, amassing over 1,700 pages of material. You know, none of it points to an answer, 
but but it all points to a mystery. The fact that there's an, a mystery alive and well here on our planet, and something that you know journalists, investigative journalists, scientists, that we need to come together. You know, uh, all all sorts of folks in all sorts of different fields to try to answer, you know, this, this great mystery, because that's for me, that's what the evidence points to the fact that there's a mystery. And and it's, it's been, like you said, it's cold war era uh, system for cataloging what we're seeing, but there's been consistency for the last 40 years in what's being seen, you know, yes, they differ. You know, you, you sell, sell stories of, uh, one of the sh- one of the objects that a pilot saw was donut shaped, which blew my mind. It's the first time I've I've heard that shape for it. Uh, and then another one was described as a a beam of light with an aura around it, which also feels like a donut shape to me. Uh, but they're all very different, but been consistent for forty years. So that tells me at least that it's not inherently influenced by you know pop culture. For the if if it's been consistent the last forty years and it was entirely uh, fictional, you'd think that the the shapes would have evolved and the stories would have changed to kind of keep up and change with the times. Yeah, yeah. In terms of that consistency, you know, it's I, it's more than forty years. It's it's about seventy years in terms of the the record I'm finding here in Canada. One and two, it's it's not only people seeing the same sorts of things decade after decade after decade. There's also some times there's certain instances where there's uh, locations that just seem to be having things pop up again and again. Um, one example I wrote about: there's a Canadian military base called uh, CFB North Bay Twenty Two Wing. I found reports from that base. I wrote about reports from that base from 2007 and 1952. Uh, The one from 1952 was actually the weirder one. And the guys reported, quote, an amber traffic light uh, that moved at a very great rate of speed comparable to twice the speed of an F-86, which is a jet fighter. And then it skidded to a stop, reverse direction and disappeared at a greater rate of speed on reversal than approach. This is in 1952 at a military base, 50, you know, and then 2007, 55 years later, there's another report. And since that uh, story was published, I found yet another report from the same base from 2020. And this, you know, coincidentally is also the base uh, where the Air Force Squadron that receives the UFO reports from NAV Canada is located. So everything's connected. And there's consistency both in terms of what people are seeing and also in certain locations, there seems to be uh, more activity than others, at least anecdotally, it seems that way. It's, it feels like it's very easy to make these connections. Oh, it's so convenient that the Air Force Base in Canada that responds to these claims also happens to be pretty heavily visited itself. It feels, if you were watching this in a movie, you'd say, well, that's obvious. That's an obvious place to throw your government facility where the aliens already are at. It does feel, it feels scripted to a certain degree when it works that way. It's, you know, for a long time, I I don't think I'm alone in saying this, that the idea of talking about UFOs felt like tinfoil hat conversation. It felt by talking about it, acknowledging it, it, it was scary to put yourself out there. And it feels like in the last 10 years, we've change the narrative on that and accepted that UFOs exist. doesn't mean that aliens exist, but we accept that UFOs exist. And recently, this was the first, I've only just come across this. 
but UAP, it's like we're rebranding UFOs is what it feels like. Unidentified aerial phenomena. Um, it feels like we're trying to rebrand so that it's an accepted part of science. And it feels like the only reason to do that is if you're setting us up for another truth bomb, if you're setting us up to drop some other information on us. Well, yeah, no, definitely referring to UFOs as UAP, unidentified aerial phenomena, is totally, it seems to me about rebranding uh, this to make it more palatable uh, for, you know, political and military leaders, and also to help end the stigma. You know, UFOs are so associated with Hollywood, flying saucers, close encounters of the third kind, ET, you name it. Uh, UAP is a fresh term. It doesn't have that kind of baggage with it. And I think it's used because it, you know, because it lacks those connotations and perhaps, uh, and the plural phenomenon, you know, identifying that people could be seeing lots of different things. You know, this could be all of the above. You know, it could be all of it. We, we just don't know. It's early days. Well, I kind of like the, the new term because it feels like UFO feels like there has to be a physical object. But the unidentified aerial phenomena feels like the opportunity for a spaceship or an entity to just be light. It doesn't have to be a ship. It could be a moving light. And maybe it's a form of energy we just haven't seen or don't understand. I feel like it's a it's a bigger net to throw over the unknown that's flying through our skies. Well, it definitely, the connotation there is openness to possibility. My, my work, you know, my work completely steers clear of speculation and things like that. You know, for me, it's about finding the documented government evidence highlighting what's said in these governments, you know, reports and procedures and leaving it at that. You know, I, 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 I don't even get into the speculation game because I, I, I don't know. I, I don't have any conclusions. I think, as I said before, I'm just really driven uh, by the mystery and the fact that the more documents I uncover, the more people I speak to, it just underscores that mystery. It doesn't provide the answers, but the mystery is alive and well. So uh, these the Civil Aviation Daily Occurrence Report System sheets that you've combed through, through, you know, I imagine hundreds, if not thousands of incidents. Thousands. Um, thousands upon thousands of incidents. Is there somebody at Transport Canada doing the same thing? Is there, are, do, do we have that, is that structure exist, that infrastructure exist within Transport Canada that somebody's actually taking a look at these things? Because in, in one of your articles, you refer to Transport Canada says, uh, that the service reports is an American tool and doesn't necessarily fall under the purview of Transport Canada, which feels like an excuse to say, hey, thanks for the sheets, but we don't necessarily read that kind of thing. Well, they, it's undeniable that they receive the reports. Whether there's any follow-up or investigation, likely not. You know, their, their official statements to me tend to be very dismissive. Um, by contrast, though, the Canadian military isn't. You know, the Canadian military, in their statements to me, express a great deal of open-mindedness. They also say it's outside of their purview, but they're not dismissive of the subject the way the transportation officials are. Um, well, I would hope so that the defense would take it seriously, as because anything could be a credible threat this unknown things flying around. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that the, the military has a, an open mind about it. 
they, they have an open mind about it, but they don't immediately identify everything as a threat. I think, you know, journalists uh, like me working in the United States have a lot harder time getting case data. You know, one of the, if you're filing, uh, we call them access to information requests in Canada and the U.S., they're freedom of information requests. When you're filing these, uh, one of the reasons the government can use to withhold information is national security. So anyone trying to get uh, UFO, UAP case data in the United States usually encounters that brick wall that material is being held on national security grounds. And that's because, you know, the Pentagon openly admits that it's researching and investigating UAP as potential national security threats. The Canadian military hasn't taken that stance. You know, they recognize that unusual reports do come in. But as far in the statements to me, they say they don't investigate unexplained phenomena. I'm paraphrasing here outside of the context of credible threats, potential threats, or potential distress in the case of search and rescue. And, you know, through my research, I, that seems to be true. Just the way Transport Canada says they don't deal with anything. You know, my, my research with the access to information requests show that that's true. It also shows that the, when the military says they only investigate credible threats, potential threats, and distress in the case of search and rescue, that's true. I found a report where um, from Prince Edward Island on Canada's uh, East Coast, a woman reported seeing a light, uh, a glowing object entering the water. You know, it, sorry, was it a glowing object? I'm trying to remember the report. I don't have it in front of me. Anyway, she reported an object entering the water and the military dispatched search and rescue helicopters to scour the area. Um, so there are cases where there is some follow-up, but... For the Canadian military, somebody seeing a weird moving round object isn't usually grounds in and of itself to investigate. If, you know, it was more clearly some uh, uh, conventional aircraft than potentially a foreign military, they'll, you know, launch uh, fighters to go investigate. But the Canadian military just doesn't seem to perceive this as a national defense issue in the way the U.S. military does, which is great for me because the second they change their minds, I'm not going to be able to get data through the access to information system. So I think in Canada, what I'm trying to do in my contacts, you know, when I'm talking to members of parliaments and, and people who are engaged with this on a scientific issue is just trying to promote the idea that this doesn't have to be a defense issue in Canada. We don't have to follow the U.S. And maybe we should treat this as a scientific matter if we want to still maintain uh, access to the data that's out there. Well, what a great sandbox for this science experiment in Canada. You know, a humongous nation with tons of, I guess, unoccupied uh, areas, you know, I, from the reports that I've seen, these aren't traditionally happening in city centers. You know, you're in the center of Lake Ontario. You're you're in the tree line in the Arctic. You're in northern Ontario. Uh, it it doesn't feel like these sightings are happening in super populated areas. And Canada has huge swaths of unpopulated areas, so it feels like it's the right space uh, to kind of conduct this research. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, dark skies too, you know, good for observation. I, I, I firmly believe that. I, it, I, you know, to me, it points that this should be treated as a scientific issue. And I think, you know, why there seems to be, especially in the U.S., you know, a lot of people getting very excited about the U.S. military's involvement in the subject. You know, for me personally, I, I, I don't 
necessarily trust military organizations to always be looking out what's best for humanity. You know, that, that's not necessarily their mandate of, you know, and the reason they exist. Uh, I, I, Absolutely. I, I think this is, this will, humanity, our, our society as a whole, will get more information, more transparency, will get a closer to truth if we focus on this as a scientific issue and take this out of the military's hands. Yeah, it's it's weird how in the last 10 years that it has turned into a military thing and there's government officials in the U.S. talking about it, you know, politicians talking about it as part of their platform of, you know, we need to investigate these things on a defensive uh, level. The, the idea that this is becoming a more acceptable or, like you said, palatable thing to talk about in and of itself should be good. Uh, but I think it's taking control. It's taking control of the narrative away. If you're not, uh, if your government is entirely controlling it, it's, I don't trust any government or giant entity to be looking out for me as an individual. So when I hear that Nav Canada is a, a privatized, you know, company in between the public and information, I inherently, I inherently can't trust that because it's somebody who has all the power. They have all the power. They can control the narrative entirely. They can pass off whatever information they want. So, you know, it might be pie in the sky, but if there was an overarching corruption, uh, 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 should NAV Canada be corrupted, they could do whatever they want, right? Because there's there's nothing you can do as a, a citizen, especially a, a journalist who's you know applying for this freedom of information. Uh, you can't get that from them. There's no reason for them to give it to you. So I, I think by hiding some of this behind a, a private organization, it almost just, it gives me, I just, I more strongly believe that there's something there. It just feels like they're forcibly hiding something. And the more, the more they hide it, the more I believe that there's something to hide. Well, you know, Nav Canada wasn't created to stand between the public and UFO truth, right? It, it was um, that Nav, we know of. You know, Canada used to have a public. It used to be Transport Canada used to manage airports the way Nav Canada does now, but in 1996 they made a 1.5 billion dollar deal to privatize that aspect of air travel. But you're, you're right in the fact that you know all the a lot of these aviation reports that I'm getting through the freedom of information, you know, through from Transport Canada and the military, these reports are coming to Transport Canada and the military via Nav Canada. Nav Canada is the intermediary. So I'm targeting Nav Canada's communications with the military and different government departments. Uh, but you're right, you know, in terms of what Nav Canada itself holds, such as tower audio recordings, you know, hearing the pilots talk about these things. Uh, corroborating radar data. There's no way for me to access that unless the Canadian government requests it. And then there was one case, you mentioned that donut-shaped object. That that was from a 2016 Porter Airlines flight from uh, Ottawa to Toronto over Lake Ontario, if my memory serves me correctly. That's a case is a fun one because I have actually identified the file number for the tower audio in that case. And they won't give it to me. You know, I, I, in my request, they're being denied because there's a provision that they can deny information if it contains privileged third-party information. So, you know, after months and months of research in this one really neat case, 
I, I, I identified the file name of the audio, but I, I still can't get it because it technically is the property of this private company, even though it's been given to the government as evidence in an investigation. With this specific case, if again, if I'm remembering reading correctly, uh, the plane dipped, uh, took a dive to avoid hitting the object. He overrode uh, autopilot in order to avoid the object, which caused a couple of the flight attendants to get injured. And then because the injured flight attendants made the news, all of a sudden the government got involved and started classifying stuff that happened there. It became something that you know got more attention than necessarily would have if nobody got injured. But because reports were filed, two, two flight attendants hit the walls because they weren't secure uh, when they took the dive. I just find it kind of interesting that you've hit a wall in it when it, it was such a public case. So, of course, of course, they're going to hide it. Well, it's interesting in that one. Yeah, as, as you said, the, the, the workplace injuries uh, made it necessary for there to be a federal safety investigation. Um, and I, one of the internal emails, I, you know, I wrote about that case and I've uh, since received some more files on it. There's one internal email where they specifically say, you know, if this had clearly been a drone or another aircraft, we would have, have been forced to launch a much more fulsome investigation. In this case, they, once they couldn't identify the thing, the investigation was closed and the final report was about a paragraph long. But in this internal email, he said, yeah, if, if this had been more clearly a drone or, or an aircraft, it would have, we would have had to do this huge multi-page investigation. It's it just, it just fascinating that it, specifically because it was unusual, the investigation ended and no information came out. Well, that's, that feels like the antithesis of science of, <laughs> oh, we've hit... Uh, something we can't explain science done. Uh, it's an excuse that wouldn't work in almost any other facet of life, but uh, to say are, that we've hit this wall and we're done. But these were federal transportation safety investigators. They're not scientists. Their mandate is to look into transportation safety. And, you know, for as far as they were concerned, they fulfilled their mandate. Jeez. That's a pretty low bar uh, to just accept that there's something in the sky, uh, but not necessarily a safety issue because we don't know what it is. So I'd like to pivot and talk about some of the reports of the shapes of the ships uh, or the objects. Sorry, I'm using the word ship flippantly, uh, but some of the shapes of these, because I, until reading your article, I hadn't come across a donut shaped. I'm, I'm used to hearing about the saucer-shaped or circular objects. Uh, I'm used to seeing stories of a bright light that seemingly can keep up with planes or in some instances, bright lights that are moving significantly faster than planes could ever move. Um, did you find any sort of consistency in, in these descriptions? Did you find that, you know, oh, it fits in one of three categories. You know, you've got your circular ones, your light-based ones, and your ones that look like jets. Did you find that Eventually, when here getting all this information, you're able to categorize what people are seeing. I, I can speak to that anecdotally. I, I I have huge charts where I like list all the reports I've been finding. I haven't categorized them formally by shape or type. I, I can say anecdotally, the majority, the vast majority, appear to be lights, lights behaving in unusual ways. Um, 
And these can be seen from, you know, far away or up close. You know, for example, there was one report I found from uh, northern Manitoba in January 2019, where the pilot reported, quote, an inexplicable bright light followed them, you know, while they were, you know, over a remote part of the province. Um, there are reports of round objects, very few reports of tubular objects, uh, lots of lights, lots of lights. Um, now, have you ever in these stories, again, I'm, I'm hitting you with this as though, as though you've read every single uh, report, but had, did you come across any instances where there was an interaction with the object or, or seeing the object interact with anything else? You know, beyond the light going into the water, are there stories of, well, it land, you know, we saw the light and it moved the trees. We saw the light and it shifted this, or I'm a pilot and the object flew past us and I could feel it in the controls. Is there, has there ever been anything beyond a visual that you've come across? Well, here's a case. uh, I haven't written about this one. Uh, This one is from 1994. This is one I found in a, in in CADORS, the Transport Canada's Aviation Incident Database. This was in northern Ontario, a pretty remote area. Um, The pilot, he's flying at night. I'm just pulling up the report. He reports an aircraft a half mile off his wing. He then reported that it was not an aircraft, but something bowl-shaped brown and orange with dark spots in the center. The object moved to become level with the aircraft and keeping pace. The pilot changed his course, and so did the object. The object came within 300 meters. The pilot resumed his original heading, uh, and the object followed. The object was described as having a curved top and bottom sloping to a rim. The object then dropped back and dived to the ground. The pilot reported it was no longer in sight. The pilot was alone and shaken. No other witnesses. So, I mean, that's a case where there's something's interacting seems to be interacting with the plane, that it seems to be following it. There seems to be some sort of deliberate movements to follow this small aircraft. It it definitely doesn't feel like a weather phenomena when it's uh, following a jet flying through (laughs) through the sky. And and I haven't written about that. And if anyone thinks that's BS, uh, go into KDORS, Transport Canada's KDORS system, and look up case 1994C0063. It's there in in a government database. Thank you for that, actually. I'm sure a great deal of the listeners are going to do exactly that and, and look up the case. Because it, it, those of us who question want proof. It's, it's helpful. Uh, I think what entices you to follow this story or follow these stories is the mystery. But from my side of things, it's the mystery that's scary. Uh, it's, it's the pursuit of answers, desperate for facts and proof to kind of... Uh, make sense of all of this because I think the further down the rabbit hole I seem to go into this stuff, the more I come out knowing that I know less. As is the case in any subject, one studies, I, I'm, I, I find the mystery compelling and humbling. Um, I, it, for me, it's just fascinating knowing that our, our science, our religion, our what have you, still can't explain everything that humans observe and experience on this planet. Yeah. I have to ask the question and I know you uh, are an impartial journalist who looks for facts and not to have an opinion, but were you to have an opinion? What are we seeing in the sky? 
I think a thousand people are seeing a thousand different things. I, I, I don't think there's one explanation that can be used to explain every so-called UFO sighting. I think a lot of people are probably uh, well-intentioned, but horribly mistaken. Uh, you know, for example, I guess one great example is um, the Starlink satellites. Have you ever seen those? When Yes. And so this is the Elon Musk Starlink company. They have these satellite trains where you see like these long lines of satellites, one after the other following each other. You know, when these were first starting to be launched, there was a huge spike in UFO, official UFO reports being filed in Canada. All of these confused pilots reporting, what the heck is this? And they were being reported as UFOs. Why? Because they didn't, nobody knew what a Starlink satellite train was then, right? Now that's, you know, it's for anyone who's invested in the subject, you know, it's, it's quite familiar. Um, all of that is to say, you know, we when we see things and experience new things, we interpret them based on our past experiences. And I think for a lot of people seeing a strange light uh, is instantly, you know, UFO. I, I was camping on uh, down on Lake Erie at a beach park, uh, a provincial park down there. I remember. And uh, I remember one morning uh, there was this woman who was just like frantically running through the campground yelling, did you see the UFOs last night? Did you see the UFOs? They were here. Uh, they weren't UFOs. They they were floating paper lanterns. Um, and I, I was very familiar with floating paper lanterns uh, because I spent a number of years in Southeast Asia reporting, you know, well before I got into UFOs. And they're pretty common out there. Um, so, you know, I think a thousand people are seeing a thousand different things. But I also think that, you know, there's a small percentage of cases like that one I just mentioned from 1994 that are so striking and so anomalous, they just don't fit into any conventional narrative or cookie cutter explanation that we have. And I think we have to be open-minded. I think there's some conclusions that are really attractive, like the you know, ET hypothesis that we could be being visited by probes or aliens or, or what have you. Um, I, I, I think the proof, you know, it hasn't been proven definitively, nothing's been proven definitively. And I think we just need to stay open-minded. Uh, we should be wary of people who've made up their minds uh, for or against this stuff, you know, scientific inquiry and, you know, investigative journalism. It, it's all about approaching things with uh, an open mind and, and hoping that the data and the facts lead you to conclusions. Uh, the data and the facts haven't led me to any conclusion other than what I, I've said, uh, just being, you know, really compelled uh, about the mystery. Um, so I don't know <laughs> to answer. That was a really no, long winded way of saying, I don't know what it is. I don't know. I don't know. No, I think, I think saying that a thousand people are seeing a thousand different things and that, you know, we should be wary of anyone who's made up their mind one way or the other before the facts speak to us. Uh, I think is a perfect place to end this. I think that's exactly what I was hoping for, to be perfectly honest, uh, validation in my pursuit, uh, and, uh, to not feel like it's a tinfoil hat conversation any longer. So thank you very much, Daniel, for your time with uh, us today. Yeah, thanks so much. The, tr the truth isn't out there, right? It's, it's, it's right here. We just got to look a little harder. Be wary of those who have made up their minds one way or the other. I love that. And I totally agree with Daniel. If this experience has taught me anything, it's that I don't know half of what I thought I did. Perception is based on experience, and the more I experience, the more my perception 
don't know, warps. If on their first recording, Noah and Sarah had said spaceship, I'd have shut it off. But now, now it's just the next logical conclusion to what they're seeing. Currently. If I get better information, I'll steer my opinion in that direction. Because I think that's what science is. Chasing the newest and most up-to-date facts and basing our opinions on those. It's the best we can do. For those of you looking to connect with the great work of Daniel Otis, you can find a heap of his articles on Vice or his website, danielotis.ca. He also updates the stories he's done on Twitter, so give him a follow, at DSOtis. Thank you to CuriousCast for all of your support on this batch of messages. If you want to get a hold of me, it's escapingdenverpod at gmail.com, or join the conversation on Reddit at rescapingdenver. I'll be back as soon as I can with more Escaping Denver.